the only thing that really kept me going was knowing that I'm the best person for my children. Everything that I've ever done was only for them. They're the only reason that I'm in recovery at first. They were. I I couldn't do it for myself. I needed to make it about them until I was to the point where it was because I loved me as well. Anin Bujo, this is Henry McKay, Nibowe Makade Makwa, Dijnakaz. And I want to welcome you to the Return of the Buffalo podcast. The Return of the Buffalo is the name given to the work of fostering family well-being at Sandy Soto Spiritual Center. It means returning to the land, returning to Indigenous life ways and being, and also returning to the teaching of respect for all nations. This podcast gathers stories from the return of the Buffalo community and wisdom from the knowledge keepers who inspire us. I'm your co-host, Henry McKay. And I'm your other co-host, Marcus Rempel. Um, and, and I want to acknowledge uh, the spirit name I carry as well, Maingan Inane Indijnakas, a name given to me that, that associates me with the, the wolf, the spirit of the teacher of humility. Um, something that I, I think I can never learn enough of. Um, who are we talking to today, Henry? We are talking to uh, Deandra Powderhorn. Um, she is one of the first participants of uh, the Return of the Buffalo. Yeah, yeah, before it was even called Return of the Buffalo. And uh, yeah, really, really powerful story. Um, not an easy story to listen to, but like... Um, so powerful knowing that, you know, she's someone who's overturned a permanent apprehension order, has both her kids back in her full custody today. Um, and uh, she's just a fun mom, an amazing mom, and also a really deep soul kind of a, a person and shares that with her kids too. Yes. Yes. Uh, her story is uh, very inspirational and um, the resiliency and strength that she holds is, is, is very, very powerful. And, um, you know, uh, if anything, you know, she is a, a beacon of hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really happy to be sharing her story uh, with, with our audience today. Um, uh, I'm also excited to share. Uh, we are now on, uh, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Podbean. So uh, you can go to any one of those and subscribe uh, and, and rate the podcast. Um, that really helps boost the profile and helps other folks uh, discover the conversation going on here. Um, so, so please, please, uh, if you like what we're doing here, go and go and do that. And I, I also want to say, if you like what we're doing here and you want to pitch in to support the work uh, that we're talking about here, uh, you can go to sandysoto.ca/donate and. Uh, there are a number of ways that you can set up for a, a one-time or a regular contribution. Um, this this work could not happen without without the support of a, of a wide constituency of, of folks who who uh, out of the, the bigness of their hearts uh, open open their their wallets and, and share with the, the Sandy Soto Spiritual Center. So so we uh, we're grateful. Uh, for those those ones who uh, who take care of us financially in those ways, um, and now without further ado, uh, let's 
get to Deandra Rose Powderhorn, our guest today on the Return of the Buffalo podcast. Aho. Aho. It's awesome to see you, Deandra. It's, uh, I'm excited to introduce you to my friend uh, and colleague Henry here. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to uh, the, the interview I did with Henry last week and a bit of his story. Cool. Yeah. And, um, and I'm really excited to hear about your story. Um, and so just thanks very much for, for coming on the Return of the Buffalo podcast. We, we have a script of, we have some questions. We'll okay. kind of take turns back and forth. Um, and I want to say, I, we offer this to, to all of our guests, but especially because you're someone who's like participated through some of, some of the healing work um, here at the Sandy Soto um, as, as a, you know, a participant in the family reunification project, uh, you're going to have a chance to listen to this whole interview after we're done. And, you know, if you end up sharing something that afterwards you're like, ah, you know, maybe I don't want to send that out to the whole universe. Like you'll, you know, you'll, you'll have that opportunity before we publish any of this. Um, But I, that being said, I'm just, I've been watching your Facebook page for a while and, and, you know, I, I get scenes of you and your kids there and um, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to catching up with you today. Um, and uh, yeah, Henry, go ahead. Why don't you start us off? Good morning, Deandra. It's nice to see you and I'm excited to um, hear about your story. Um, I'm glad that you got a chance to, to I guess, um, listen to, to a little bit of my story as well. Um, I'm excited to be uh, doing this with you. Um, so yeah, we'll get started here. So okay. you were um, Sayasi uh, Dene, and a lot of people don't know the story of the of your people. Uh, it is, I would say, one of the most tragic stories of dispossession and displacement um, of Indigenous people in Canada, particularly Manitoba. Um, and that didn't happen long ago as well. So how has your family been touched by this tragedy and how has it shaped your story um, in, as yourself? Um, well, it's, it's everything really. It's um, the reason I'm a third generation alcoholic and my need to self-medicate with substance abuse. Um, in 1956, a biologist went to Duck Lake and um, saw that there were slain caribou on the shoreline. And to him, it was a crisis and it was animal cruelty. And he took a photo and he took that photo to the media. And once that photo was published, that was the push that started the domino effect that led to the downfall of my people. Um, when, when we were discussing this move, nobody knew any English. We were self-sustained. We didn't need any help from the government whatsoever. We were able to survive year round in one of the harshest places in Canada. And the only outside contact we really had was through the trading post And what we thought that we were agreeing to was a better life. We were told that we would have housing that we'd be taken care of. We were told that 
that the men would work and the kids would go to school. And we basically thought that we'd be living with in harmony with, with the bun lie, with, with, with the white people. And that's what we were told. That's what we thought that we were going into. And so on August 17th was when a government aircraft, military aircraft showed up in Duck Lake and nobody really understood what was going on. And in, from the moment that it landed, everybody was just told, okay, you know what, grab your stuff. It's, it's time to go. You're leaving. Hmm. And nobody was able to grab the things that they needed in order to continue their way of life. Like it was impossible to do that. They wanted us away from the caribou ASAP because they thought that it was, there was like a caribou crisis. And hmm. A distant uncle of mine was five years old during this plane ride, and he still remembered it as an adult because it was the first time anyone had been on a plane. And there were over 50 people and over 70 dogs on that aircraft. Hmm. And he remembers that flight because all the kids were vomiting, but he didn't. And the dogs were throwing up and they were barking and they were fighting and they were howling. So it was, yeah, it's just, it's awful to think about. Um, And then once we showed up at the Hudson Bay, they literally left us on the shoreline. We were told that there would be housing and we, we were dumped at a barren shoreline of the Hudson Bay. And that's, that's pretty cold up there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's super harsh. Um, I actually want to share a quote from former MLA, George Hicks. Um, he, he was a child in Churchill. He grew up in Churchill and, um, he remembers seeing the people. Okay. This is a direct quote that he shared in the, Manitoba Legislative Building. I remember very clearly, very clearly, the individuals who are at Lower Dock because we used to go because kids are curious to look at them. The individuals were dressed in their moose hide jackets with their beads. Very, very proud people stood straight and tall. Lots of dignity and a lot of pride. But when you saw the den of people who left Churchill in 1973, you could not say that was the same people who had arrived to live in Churchill. So that 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 dispossession really affected your people that ripples through the generations yeah, still. Very today. much so. You can see it everywhere. I remember reading a book actually about um, your people and um, reading about the conditions, you know. Um it's something that not a lot of people mm-hmm. know about. You know, the conditions where a lot of people froze, alcoholism was yeah. rapid. Over know. a third of us died. Um, mm. When we arrived on the shore, the people who had tents, they set them up. But the people who didn't had to look for whatever they could in order to provide themselves shelter. And most of that material was cardboard. Sheesh. And, wow. yeah. And the people moved they moved themselves up to DOT Hill. It's, it isn't far. It's about 300 meters from the Hudson Bay. And um, 
they made themselves houses out of plywood scraps. And then once the townspeople of Churchill saw their living conditions, the government was notified and eventually shamed into building us our, our homes, homes being the operative word. Um, these homes were 14 by 16 foot shacks, basically, uh, with no, no running water, no heat. There was a single wooden stove and, um, Every single family got the same house. It didn't matter how big your, your family was. There could be 10 kids, two parents, and still the same size house. Um, a lot of overcrowding. Mm-hmm. And this was where, this was when my mom was born. She was born into this. And uh, her, her first years were good. She, she's the third eldest of what was 13 kids. And um, mm-hmm. the three eldest had to be separated because because they were so poor. So the three eldest were living with different family members. And so my mom's beginning years there, they were good because um, alcohol became legal for Indigenous people to consume the same year that my mom was born. But uh, while she was living with my great-grandma Lucy, she didn't drink. So my mom lived with her until she was five. And then once she passed, my mom moved home. And around the time that my mom moved home, around the time that my grandma had passed, was around the time that my grandma grandma started drinking as well. She hadn't, only Mm. my grandpa had before then but she started as well. And that was when things completely took a turn for my family. Um, My grandpa, Simon, was actually the chief at the time, but it didn't change anything for them. They were still one of the poorest families. Mm. My mom, she, she told me a story and it still makes my tummy churn. Um, she was about eight years old and she, she started school around the time when she was five, but, um, she was about eight years old and it was lunchtime and they never had any lunch. They rarely ate before school. And she was walking with her friend near the store and, uh, her friend said to her, I know where we can get oranges and apples. And... My mom was like, okay, well, let's go. And what she was talking about was the garbage bin behind the store. Mm. And the people who owned the store had burned the garbage before then. Mm. So these two eight-year-old girls crawled into the dumpster, dug through all of that burnt garbage till they got to the bottom, and they found two frozen solid oranges and ate them. Mm. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. I'm struck by the particular cruelty of like, of taking people who, who had ways of sustaining themselves on the land, who had the skills, who had the Mm -hmm. knowledge, who had the tools. um, And like, like there's the, there's the poverty of like the shacks and, and the like the inadequate you know provision by the government but there's also there's like 
Like there was, these were people that like knew how to take care of themselves. Like they didn't need any of that. And, and to like, to, to make people poor and dependent at the same yeah. time. And then, and then to, and then to leave them so like, so utterly bereft that their kids are sifting through the garbage to eat. Um, it's just inhumane. Mm-hmm. When do you come along? Like, where is your family when you're born, Deandra? Um, well, uh, this, okay. So we're at camp 10 right now. And, uh, so my mom and her family, well, my mom and her sisters were going to school. And when the people started moving away from Dena village, my grandpa wanted his daughters to continue their schooling. So he had arranged with Indian Affairs for his daughters to go into foster care so that they could go to school while my grandpa moved to South Knife with my grandma. My grandpa had a vision for his daughters and he knew that the time that they were living in was a man's world, but he also Hmm. knew that the world that his daughters would grow to see would be a woman's world. And women would lead and women would work and women would rise again like they had before contact. So he wanted them prepared for that. And as a result of my grandpa's wisdom, my mom went to school and she later became the director of education in Tadouli Lake. Um, My my aunt Gladys, she was the second woman to be chief in Saisi Dennis history. Hmm. Um, my another aunt became like the band administration, and another became the my aunt Caroline became the director of finance for the education authority. So these these women who started out as one of the poorest families in Dena village, their resilience got them to the point where they made huge impacts on the community that we ended up rebuilding for ourselves. Mm. So Tadouli Lake is, is mostly, or is all, is, is all survivors from that Saisi Denny or is it, I know it's Denny, but is it, is it all Saisi Denny? All Saisi Denny. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And is that, is that where you grew up then? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, 1973 was when the people went, well, they finally got the okay to go and look for, for their land that they would rebuild on. And that was where I grew up. I, I, I moved a lot in my really early years and I I moved there when I was about four and that was when my mom started working for the education authority and um, when we moved back things were okay I don't really have a lot of memories from when I was really really young Um, I do know that my dad was drinking a lot and my mom was too, but I never seen I never seen anything of my mom. 
and they try to keep it away from the home as much as they could. But I remember being afraid of of drunk people for a really long time because I saw mm. what it could do to them. Like you could see it in the community and uh, hearing stories. Um, growing up in Tuduli, it was a lot different from where I moved from. Um, I had moved from Regina and I was about four I think, and that was actually where I experienced racism for the first time. In Regina? At the age of, yeah, at the age of four, because I was in daycare, and I was one of two Indigenous kids there, and I remember that was the only person who would play with us, where we would only Mm. play with each other, and I remember the looks that I would get from the other kids, and I I, I was literally a tiny child, Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Regina's a pretty uh, racist place for yeah. sure. But when uh, I think I want to backtrack because okay. um, I have some stuff here about my mom and more about her growing up. When my mom had started school, um, what is now a safe haven for kids who have problems at home was it was just another hell for them Mm. because of the racism that they experienced and they were bullied for the way that they were dressed uh, because when the parents were drinking, Mm. nobody took care of the kids. The kids were dirty. Their clothes were torn. They were either too big or too small. They, they didn't wash up in the mornings because there are stories of like the kids waking up in the morning to a completely cold house because there's no, there's nothing in the wood stove to keep it warm. And the little basin that they would wash up in would actually have ice floating in it. Mm-hmm. And the kids, they would just, they would play outside all day come home, sleep in those clothes, and then leave the next day and go to school like that. And the bullying that they, that they experienced, it's still, Mm -hmm. you can still see it in the people. You can see it in the way one of my aunts will not wear an item of clothing if it has one small tear in it. Mm. You can see it in and everything it's everywhere in the in the beginning of the Tuduli Lake years as well as Dena Village if you look at photos from those times every single person is skinny mm. because of their lack of food and a lot of the people would rely on the dump for their food for their clothing for items to burn for heat And the only toys that the kids ever owned were from the dump as well. Hmm. People would go in groups and they'd carry boxes on their backs and they'd go and they'd gather together. And a lot of kids even went and 
a lot of them when they when they speak about it they remember feeling that shame when mm. they were walking towards their with their families so within like a couple like a generation or two your people went from a strong proud and dignified people to people digging in the dump just to survive yeah yes yeah the the things that the kids seen were unimaginable um they learned to hate family allowance day as well as welfare day because those were the days that the people got money the adults got money and they would leave and they would always come back with beer and wine and that was when the most Mm. happened um they they were witness to rapes and beatings until someone was sent to the hospital. Mm. They they even saw death, and these are just these are just tiny mm-hmm. children, and this is what they lived through. They learned to hide under houses to keep themselves safe. Mm. They would sleep under houses. Some like set up little areas for themselves that they would go to because they had to hide so frequently. Hmm. Yeah. So my mom and her siblings, they lived like that until the people started moving because the people went from, we were dumped on the Hudson's Bay shore. Then we went to Camp 10. After that was Denna Village. And then from Denna Village in 1966, I think was when they started migrating. They started moving towards... Um, south knife and north knife lake and when my grandpa decided to go was when my mom and her sisters went into foster care Mm. but throughout all of that my mom and her sisters they the resiliency that they have is just it's it's mind-blowing there's actually a photo of my mom her twin sister Jesse and my aunt, all three sisters as tiny children, and you can see their dirty clothes, their dirty hair, their dirty faces, and their torn, their mm-hmm. torn clothing. You could see that in the photo, but then you have the photos of them in their. You have their grad photos. And just like comparing those two, it's, it's, it's really Mm -hmm. powerful. So I come from a long line of strong women and resilient women. And I believe that that's how I was able to, to get through everything that I have so far. Yeah, you talk about um, how the trauma has been passed down from generation to generation, mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of people don't don't understand that um, there's also the resiliency exactly. that is passed down. Exactly. You know, that's a that's a beautiful thing. You know, it um, it really helps um, our our generation. You know, and then you know, it could pass down to our children and. You know, um, I, I still have hope that things will get better for our people, you know, Indigenous people in, in Canada, mm-hmm. you know, because of this resiliency that we, we all have in our, 
in our in our in our spirits, you know, from from prior generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the so I would like to honor that, yeah. you know, that resiliency that's passed on mm-hmm. as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you have survived is incredible. Mm-hmm. The intergenerational trauma, it's still like there are people who didn't resort to substance abuse, but even those people, they use success or being busy as a means to silence the noise. Mm. And you, there's so many different, different outlets that you see. And I, I grew up seeing the substance abuse and when I, it was introduced to me, it was normal. It was just the way things were. And mm-hmm. growing up as a kid, I think I was about eight or so, I started seeing more of it. And um, because of the trauma that everybody went through, and like my grandma, my mom's mom, she had been to residential school. So you have that. Hold on. Okay, she came (laughs) in again. Um, (laughs) um, Where was I? Oh, yeah. No, close the door. Close the door. (laughs) Go and close the door. Close the door. She comes in and closes the door behind her. (laughs) She's smart. (laughs) Okay, she is. When 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 mom points, she's like, "Okay." (laughs) She's funny. Um. I really love how you are with your kids, Deandra. I know we're in the midst of like talking about some really heavy stuff, yeah. But it's it's nice in the middle of it to just like be reminded of like how you are with your kids, yeah. and yeah, it's funny. Um, so my mom's mom, my granny Rubina, she went to residential school before any of this ever happened before the relocation. So you have that on top of it. And my grandma, she wasn't a woman of many words. Um, and if, if you hugged her and you got a hug back, it was like, Oh my God, she hugged mm. me. <laughs> or like, um, if you told her, I love you then it was she would she would nod her head and she would say yeah, and that means like mm. okay and that's that was that was granny and that was how we knew her but everybody everybody understood why mm. that was because of all of everything that she had survived everything that she had went through but i think that plays a huge role in my childhood because me growing up, I think I was about eight and I 
was emotionally neglected at home. I had everything that I needed when it came to material things. I had clothes. I had food. I never went without the things that my Mm. mom went without in that sense. I've never experienced hunger. I've never known what it's like to have nothing. But the emotional neglect was there and it was it was awful and I held a lot of resentment for a mm. really long time because of it. Um and because I wasn't getting the right attention, I would work at getting the wrong attention because attention is still attention. And I started running away and I would sneak out in the middle of the night and I would get into trouble and kids would break into places in Stooley and kids would vandalize. And a lot of times I was right there with them and I would get in trouble and I would get grounded, but all of those times that I was stuck at home, it would still just be me in my room. And I I remember, I think I was about 11, and I was sitting on the couch watching TV, and my dad was sitting on the couch opposite me. And he looked at me, and I had a blonde streak in my hair, and he said, look at, look at your hair. Your hair looks nice. Hmm. And I had to turn to him, and I told him, Dad, I did that a year ago. Hmm. And... You could see the look of disappointment in himself Mm. once I said that. And so a lot of it was like that. I was either, I was either out or I was at home in my room. That was, that was my life. And my friends became my family Mm. and my friends were where I got that, that love and that affection from. Mm. While I was out, was where I started with substances because I actually had, I struggled with my mental health at a really young age, but I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't have the language. I didn't have the knowledge to understand what was going on with me. I just knew that I was sad all the time. And I started, um, I started self-mutilating. I would, Mm. yeah. At a really young age, I think I was about nine years old when I started doing that. And it was something about knowing that I was real and that I was actually visible. Mm. It was needing that confirmation Mm. and actually, Mm. yeah, it it was pretty bad. And then I turned to substances at the age of 11. It started with with weed and then it gradually went up and it turned into alcohol by the time I was 12. And then when I was 13 was when I had moved to Winnipeg with my mom. My parents separated and I moved to Winnipeg and there's a mixture of culture shock and emotional neglect because my mom was going through her own thing and 
it was as if we coexisted in the same house. We never really spoke. And I now had access to all of the drugs. Mm-mm. Right. Just everything. And I took advantage of that. And I started using heavy drugs at a very young age as well. Mm. And I would be out all night because I was with um, one of my best friends who had also moved to the city. Um, And he was older and trustworthy. So it was okay for me to be gone all hours of the night with him. And I was going to raves when I was like 15. And I would come home and I would still be messed up and It's, it was hard and it, I, I stayed that way for a really long time and, uh, finally around, uh, once I became an adult, once I was 18, it got to the point where I had completely disconnected myself from people Hmm. I used to be the social and outgoing person when I was younger and when I had first moved to the city and because of my addiction I had started losing friends or I just didn't want to be around anybody and it got to the point where I was at home all the time in my room and just getting high Hmm. and I I think that that might be where my anxiety kind of started because I spent so much time just by myself and not really engaging with people. And I stayed that way until I, until shortly before I was, I got pregnant with Scarlett. So that whole entire time from the time I was 11 until I was 19, I was using heavily. Wow, that's a that's a long time. You know, um, when uh, when you talk about addictions, um, there's a lot of stigma out yeah. there when it comes to substance use, and attached to that stigma is a lot of shame for the people that are are wanting to mm-hmm. medicate. You know, um, a lot of people don't know that you know substance abuse can be you know traced back to, to trauma or you know early childhood mm-hmm. development, you know, when a lot of people are shamed yeah. for that. Um, it occurs to me, you live with your mom now. Uh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how much do you and your mom talk about those days now with each other? Uh, we don't. Um, but we do talk now Mm. and it's, things are okay. Mm. And we've, we've grown closer even, even more so 
in the pandemic because everybody's home mm. and yeah. yeah we just spend a lot of time together so things have improved mm. immensely in, yeah. in that area I feel like it's because we've both worked through a lot of the things that we'd gone through because I used to hold resentment towards her for the way that things were when I was a kid. But once I started working on myself and understanding why I am the way that I am, that was when I started to understand her more as well. Mm -hmm. And that was when that that empathy mm. really came in mm. and that compassion and understanding like she did the best that she could yeah. with what she had with yeah. what she knew and it's not easy raising children when you have the whole world on your shoulders mhm mm yeah yeah well that's that's really powerful I'm, and uh yeah, and it's it's interesting to just like to think about like you know that 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 can be a stage of the healing too, where you where you you get to a place of of that kind of quiet respect and and understanding of each other, uh, you know. But like like maybe someday you'll have you know maybe you'll you'll be able to talk about that really painful history that's between you, but. I think I think that's not uncommon that like just because there's so much like there, there's still so much trauma there for both of you in that in that past that it's like you know there, there mm -hmm. can be a um there can be a time of of just like respecting that and, and kind of laying that to the side and starting starting afresh um without digging through all the the stuff with each other right mm -hmm. um yeah and uh, I think that's, I think that's good for people to hear, you know, it's good for people to hear that that's possible. Um, mm -hmm. hmm. So you're 19 and you're still heavily using substances like drugs. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you um, had your first child? Did you have children? Ah, uh, yes, I have two. Um, I stopped when I was 18 and I was 19 when I had Scarlett. Um, so in that time, I didn't even understand that I was an addict. With all of those years of experience, I never thought to like, I never thought of myself that way and I didn't understand. So I wasn't able to, do what I needed in the time that I was pregnant to really reflect or anything. And my, my pregnancy was really traumatic as well because of her father and our volatile relationship. And, mm. um, so it was, it was really traumatic. And then we were separated during that time and then once she was born uh about a month into it we had gotten back together and I think she was about 18 months when I started drinking again hmm. 
Yeah. I would do it. I would drink at night when she was asleep and she never saw me drunk or she never saw her dad drunk and that was our way of justifying it I guess and um we we didn't drink too much and we didn't fight or any of that so in our minds we were okay everything was fine this is just the way that life is and Scarlett she never she never went without um she she had the clothes and the food and she had her toys she had everything that she needed but I had my addiction and as much as I tried to shield that from her it it eventually led to her being apprehended and put into foster care hmm. At what age was she when she was placed into foster care? Two and a half. Yeah. Mm. And when? And sorry. Talk about talk about that as a trauma. Her being taken. Mm-hmm. When? When it happened. heard I was actually she she was taken from her dad and I was in the hospital Hmm. and so after that I went home to just an empty house Hmm. and all of her toys that she had been playing with I I I didn't touch them I just I, I left them where she left them and I remember the silence the most and the sound of a quiet room with a ticking talk, ticking clock. It's still traumatizing. Um, that's what I remember the most from the first couple days after Scarlett was apprehended. And um, I spent all day or so like if you're in a in a room if you're in a room today and it's just quiet yeah. and, and there's a ticking clock like that's a trauma like you, it just yeah. comes comes rushing yeah. back still today mm-hmm. yeah um so immediately after she was apprehended i had made an appointment for an intake at Pritchard house and that that appointment was a month away so in that month all all I did was drink mm. that was it I would wake up in the morning and the only way that I would get out of bed was to go to the vendor to get alcohol come back home drink cry scream go back to bed and then start the same thing the next day it was the only mm. way that I would eat and the only way that I would sleep was if I was drunk and mm. I feel like it's during this time that the energy in my home really changed because afterward and even after I I started my recovery, if you walked into my home, you could feel it. You could feel that emptiness and it was like the, 
the negative energy it was it was thick and it was just dark it was really bad but um Mm. Two weeks, uh, two weeks after Scarlett was apprehended, her dad was actually arrested in our home at gunpoint, and so then I was really alone. Mm. I was oh. completely by myself in a two-story home that I once shared with the two loves of my life and then I was just I was I was alone and I I waited those two weeks for my intake appointment but then I I went there with the mindset of okay I really want this help I really need this help I'm gonna be completely honest about everything I'm gonna just tell them so I can really get the help that I need so I did that and I went and I have a history of of suicide attempts. I have mm. about five and I told them about that. And because of that, they told me, we don't have the health staff available for your mental instability. So I left there thinking like, okay, well now... I'm 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 too messed up for rehab. Yeah. And I left and that same night was when I started using heavy drugs again. And <sighs> at first I was able to control it. And I was still able to shield my daughter from it. I was able to clean up before I had a visit. I would go to the visit and then the same night of the visit because of that that trauma. Every single visit mm-hmm. was traumatic because of having to leave her with these strangers, with these strange people yeah. and her crying and saying, mm. Mommy, don't leave. And... Every time that I had left, I would leave and I would use again just to cope with that mm-hmm. and just to not mm-hmm. feel so empty. And the shame that comes with having your child apprehended mm. is it's drowning. And that's what keeps a lot of parents in the same cycle because it Mm -hmm. is so hard to get out of. I stayed this way for, I think it was about seven, no, about almost a year I stayed this way. And I was able to control my addiction at first, but then it got to the point where I had used for an entire month and I didn't see my daughter. I didn't see my daughter for an entire month. And it got to the point where I had just used, like, I had just used, literally just finished a second later, and then I remembered how it felt to hold her. Mm. And I, I cried, and I couldn't stop. 
and I was screaming and my my roommate at the time locked herself in a room because she didn't know what I was going to do. And I I was messaging people and I guess I messaged my mom and she got scared and ended up calling the police to my house to check on me. And I ended up having to go to the crisis response center. But once I got there, I just, I totally lied to the people who were, who were doing my intake. After that, I, I went back home, but the next day, that night was when I decided to go to detox for the first time. And it's actually, it's a pretty lengthy process in order to get in. They make you go there, pick up forms, go to the doctor, have them fill it out, and then go back with all your stuff to be admitted. And that that first night that I went without using was really, it was really hard. Um, I remember feeling like I wanted to crawl out of my skin. And I felt I, I couldn't stay still. I would stay still for like a second and then I'd start moving again. I'd start like rubbing my legs or my arms. And the only way that I was able to make it through those 24 hours was by having cold showers. Like every 15 mm-hmm. minutes, that was the only thing that kept me going. That was the only thing that stopped me from going out and using again. And when I showed up at at the detox center with my mom I almost walked out so many times and I even had to because of how I felt I had to take off my shoes and I was like walking around the the hallway with my shoes off because I just I I the way that I felt was it was too much it was too much and I finally got in, but when I got in, I just, I slept for like five days because every time that I used, I would be using for five days straight without sleep. Mm. And so I slept for about four days when I first got there, but I, I completed it. I completed the 10 days, but the same day I got out, I drank mm. because I was like, okay, well, at least it's not the other stuff. And again, justified it that way. And I relapsed two more times after that. And the the last time that I had relapsed with hard drugs, I ended up in the hospital. And the look on my sister's face both of my sisters, when they came to see me, the look in their eyes is what has kept me away from that drug. Uh, hmm. I I could tell that my oldest sister, when when she looked at me, I could tell that she wanted to cry, but she wouldn't cry in front of me. She would leave the room, and then she would she would come back, and you could see it in her face that she had hmm. been crying and. My other sister said that I looked lifeless, 
I, I could hardly even lift my own head and I could hardly even lift my own arms and I was skinny and I was like, you looked in my eyes and there wasn't anything there. There was no spirit. There was no, there was just nothing. And remembering the way that they looked at me and remembering the pain in their eyes is, is what's kept me away. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I, that kind of reminds me of uh, something I heard a while back about how when we self-medicate with substances and these drugs, it's kind of like we're we're even we're, we're distancing ourselves from from spirit. You know, our 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 disconnection to our spirit is even even greater. And like that's what it sounds like is that what you described, you know, there's there was no spirit, you were lifeless. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's pretty powerful. And and when does your son come along? Um after after that incident I I drank again, but I started slowing down around December and it went from every day to being every two weeks. And it was weird because it was kind of like, it was kind of like I knew because I ended up getting pregnant in December. And then, Hmm. uh, cause I I had gotten back with, with Scarlett's dad after my time in the hospital and he was using the same thing, but we never did it together. So, I don't know, together we just, we, we were trying to stay away from it. And it it worked. But uh, in January was when I found out that, that I was pregnant. And that was when I knew for sure that, okay, like, I'm done. I'm not going back to alcohol. Mm. I'm not going back to using and I really need to find whatever tiny sliver of strength that I have and I need to go off of that so I did and I went into rehab for the first time that March Um, I wasn't able to complete it though I was in my first months of my pregnancy and it was it was really taking a toll on me, um, and I ended up catching the flu, and I wasn't able to make it to classes, so I wasn't able to complete that time. But in June, I went back. I went to AFM, and I completed that. And after that, I went into Villa Rosa hoping that Hmm. being there would help me keep my son when he was born because everybody was saying like you know what they're they're probably gonna take him and Hmm. I was thinking okay like you know what I need to do everything that I can right now in order Mm -hmm. to prevent that from happening so I did my entire pregnancy was spent going to programs going to meetings and going to all of my visits and being in close contact with my doctor for my mental health and 
I was doing all of these things and I was so drained, but I, I didn't stop because I wanted my baby. And then two weeks before he was born, I had gone to court and my worker said to me, you know what, you've been working really hard and I think you deserve a chance. Mm-hmm. And then the day that I had my son, he wasn't even 12 hours old. And they came in and they told me we're taking him tomorrow. Mm. And. After all the work you'd put in. Mm -hmm. And. I, I started crying immediately and my mom was with me and she. She was upset also and. My son ended up having jaundice, and they can't apprehend a child until you're discharged from the hospital. So Mm. I got five days with my son. Mm. And I really wish I was able to enjoy them, but the anxiety that I felt that entire time Mm. of, will they be coming today? Will they be coming right now? Will they walk in the door? (sighs) And it's... It really affected my time with him. And when it was time for us to be discharged, they told me that he would be going with his grandma where Scarlett was, Mm. his paternal grandma. So I got a hold of her and I asked her, will you be the one to, to, to take him from me? And... She said, okay. And I said, I don't want them to touch him. Mm. So she, she did. And I really, I'm really grateful for her for that. And so my kids were fortunate in that they spent, my son spent all of his time in care with family and my daughter spent the majority of her time in care with family. Hmm. And how, how old was your son when you came to the retreat at Sandy Soto? He was one and a half. He was almost two. Um, After, after my son was apprehended, I wanted to use so badly. Like that mm, urge, mm. it was just, that that urge was never so strong as it was there. But instead of giving into it, I decided that I wanted to go back into rehab. The first rehab that I attempted to go to in March, I wanted to go back there. And uh, I did. It was Tamarack Recovery Center. And... I went there, I completed it, and I feel like that's where that's where most of my my knowledge came from. That's where most of my real changes happened. Cool. Uh, because they're so informative, and I'm a very logical person, and they, they speak about the brain science when it comes to addiction and what what causes... Like if two people are from the same family and they experience the same things, why one becomes an addict and one doesn't. Mm. 
so it's all these all these different things that they they teach you about they teach you about trauma complex trauma and all the different there's they're really informative and it felt like after knowing all of these things then like how can you go back hmm. after learning everything they they gave you a language to name your experience and make sense exactly. of it. Yeah. Mm. Do you, do you remember where were they following a particular approach that you know has a name like different kinds of healing approaches have you know different kinds of names? Uh, DBT, dialectical okay. behavior behavioral therapy. Okay. Yeah. 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 So that was a big turnaround for you. Yes. Yeah, and I I continued on that path and I started medication after I had my son because I didn't want to start while I was pregnant with him. But I started once he was born and I was in rehab and I was doing my parenting programs and I did everything that they wanted me to do. I had mm-hmm. everything completed. And still, it took three more years for my kids to be returned to my care. Mm -hmm. In 2018, the beginning of 2018, I was told that there were no more protection concerns. But I was still having supervised visits. I continued to have supervised visits for two more years. Yeah, wow. They string you along. Mm -hmm. And... Mm. It was it was hard. It was extremely hard. And then on top of that, it was like I was running in place. It was like I was I was getting nowhere with these people. I was bending mm-hmm. over backwards to no avail. And it was it was really hard. And then I had my own traumas that I was going through still, even at the time, when I was bettering myself and I had been in the best place that I had been, there was still there was still things that had happened to me that that really shifted everything and that was around the time that I went to Sandy Soto it was during this time where it was it felt like I was running uphill Mm. and in my time at Sandy Soto before then it was really hard for me to connect with spirituality because Mm. we lost all of that in Denna Village we lost everything to alcohol and growing up i was never i was taught the christian way of things but in a way for it to shame me for the things that i liked like mm. because of right. the way that i dressed and the way that the the music that i listened to and things like that i was told that good christians don't do those yes, things yes exactly that kind of finger wagging spirituality. Yeah, exactly. So because of that, I grew up to resent spirituality as a whole because it was hard for me to separate spirituality from Christianity. And I really struggled with that. And then I remember the first day at Sandy, we went medicine picking and mm. he said, okay, before 
before you you cut the sage you need to say a prayer and offer tobacco and i remember i approached you and i said how do i pray hmm. and i i genuinely felt like i didn't know how and i felt silly even and because i'm a very logical thinker and in my mind everything starts from something and nothing can just exist nothing is unexplainable that was the way that i thought mm. and i continued to keep an open mind and i kept telling myself like okay hey, like just 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 stop <laughs> just give it a chance and um my first ever sweat was while at sandy and um when while we were in there something in me changed hmm. and i don't know what it was but instead of the instead of the avoidance or the negativity towards it i was welcoming to it Mm -hmm. and i felt something that was bigger than me and it was something foreign and i didn't understand it and it didn't it wasn't explainable mm. and that was when i realized like i was wrong and so for the rest of the retreat I kept that that mindset and the the wants to learn really came through and it was it was a really good experience and um after leaving Sandy I went to Toronto for a concert I went to see Ozzy and Stone Sour and then while there I lost a friend when I was pregnant with my son. His name was James. And when we were younger, we would listen to Stone Sour all the time. And there was a certain song that he really loved. And I was sitting there. I was by myself. I went to Toronto alone. And I was I was there. I was at the stage. And I was listening to them play this song. And I felt like I wasn't alone. Mm. And I felt like he was there with me. And that was that was really the when everything really changed. It was like the confirmation that I needed that there's there are things that that can't be explained. Mm. Yeah. So that connection, you know, that being able to connect to spirit, that song mm -hmm. and the memory of your friend, and you know, the possibility that he was there in spirit with you. You know, that's a that's very mm -hmm. impactful. Yes. So you managed to overturn a, a permanent apprehension uh, and get uh, back custody, mm -hmm. full of both your children. Um, so, like, take us through the process of uh, of overturning that. Um, after I left Sandy, within I don't know a few months, I had actually relapsed 
for a couple months. And I went back into recovery that January. And I told the agency everything. And shortly after that was when we started talking about reunification. Hmm. Because I started getting drug tests and my levels were going down. And they saw that I was actually, I was actually quitting and I was actually cleaning myself up. But it's, it's strange to me that after that happening, the conversation about reunification started. I started getting overnights with my kids that summer and my visits were no longer supervised that summer. And it feels as if they wanted to break me before building me back up again Mm. because they strung me along for so long. And I had almost two years of clean time and I was still getting nowhere with them. But then after, after the relapse and after I started, I didn't go back to rehab and still we started this conversation about reunification and So that that summer, we started having overnight visits, and they started coming over for longer. They would stay for the weekend. And the the first night that I spent with my son, after the five days when he was born, was when he was almost two. Mm. he's almost two years old and it was it was hard for him because all he knew was grandma and grandpa sure and for my daughter as well it was hard for her at first and having to put my feelings aside and comfort them and understand where they're coming from it was it was really hard and um so we started the process of the reunification they st- we started getting more time together and it got to the point where it was like every other day that they were coming over and then um they finally decided that in December was when I would be able to have my daughter come and live with me. They wanted my son to come home first, but that didn't feel right because my son Mm. grew up with his grandparents. It was hard for him the first night that, that he was, that he's, he stayed with me and he was supposed to come home that August and this happened in July. Our first night together was in July and they wanted him home in August. And I said, no, like that's, that's going to be traumatic for him. And mm-hmm. it will also be traumatic for my daughter who is, who was five at the time and who understood everything that was happening. To split yeah. them up. And um, my daughter remembers when she was home with her parents and she remembers being taken and she remembers living with her foster family. She remembers all of these things. And then to have my son come home first 
it would have completely crushed her. Mm-hmm. So for for both of my kids, really, I I chose to have my daughter come home first, and it was a longer wait because my son would have been ready to come home in August, but for my daughter, I had to wait for December. But I still did it because it's strange, like. Like why why would they make it a longer process for the one than the other? Uh, my daughter was a permanent ward and my son wasn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she was in a different legal category. Yeah, yeah. and um But still Yeah. It's it was it didn't make any sense. But she started living with me and we were kind of seeing how that went, I guess. And then after about a month was when the legal process started for her to really come home. And in that time, my son was on and off coming over. He would stay for like a few days, go back to his grandparents, stay for a few days. And he's still in that cycle because that's what works for him. Mm-hmm. His grandparents are his primary caregivers. Because like we, we get the same amount of time together, but he has that that bond with them he bonded with them and not me for a long time for almost two years i only saw both of my kids for four hours a week Hmm. and in that time i felt like i was a babysitter Mm-hmm. And I wasn't a parent, and I had a supervisor there, and it was hard for me to know what to do and what not to do. Because in the past, when I had been completely myself and I was parenting my kids, I had gotten kind of like a finger in my face from from social workers mm-hmm. about the things mm-hmm. that I was doing. And it wasn't anything wrong. I've learned now. One of mm-hmm. the times my daughter was crying for her dad and saying I miss dad and I cried with her and I said you know what me too Mm. and we were sharing a moment but after a social worker approached me and she said no you need to keep it together in front of your daughter if your daughter is sad then you don't like she that was what she said to me and even now I'm trying to get myself out of that because it's important for my daughter to see that feelings Mm -hmm. are okay there's nothing wrong with that and for my son when he was first apprehended I would get three hours a week with him one hour was just me and him so he's a brand new baby and I'm holding him in this room with fluorescent lights and a wall with a two-way mirror on it and I'm just sitting there with my baby and then I was I, I would touch his face and like his hair and stuff and then after my visit the social worker the same social worker approached me and she said why are you touching his face I said excuse me and then she said why why are you touching his face it seems like you're trying to wake him up Oh goodness Yeah 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 and it it stays with you and for a really long time I I really doubted myself and I second-guessed myself a lot 
because of these things. I'm just struck, like, that's that's such a, I don't know, like, I think about this colonial power takes so many different shapes and forms, right? Mm-hmm. There's, like, there, it's one kind of power move to, like, throw a bunch of people in the back of an airplane and drop them off somewhere. You know, so it's kind of a brute force colonial move, right? But then there's also, but then this, like, you know, telling a mother, like questioning a mother for touching her child's face. And especially when like everything is on the line, Mm -hmm. right? Like you, like your, you know, this system has the power to decide whether you can see this boy or not, whether you can spend an overnight with this boy or not, whether you can, you know, have this boy back or not, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so that, so that kind of like, uh, you know, that kind of little finger wag, you know, we were talking about other kinds of like Christian piety finger mm-hmm. wagging earlier, earlier, right? Like this is an, another kind of finger wag that like, you know, it, it has this like, you know, there's a sense of like concern and like, you know, we know what's in the best interests of your child and you don't, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's coming from that kind of, but it's, it's like, and, and and you and, and you're in a position where like you can't tell someone else you can't tell your social worker to go take mm-hmm. a hike or <laughs> say something yeah. a little more colorful <laughs> yeah <laughs> because they have all this power over you mm-hmm. um and so like like the i'm just thinking about the like the emotional psychological like the mind games that are going yeah. on in that kind of an exchange, the head games. Um, and, and I know social workers are just trying to do their jobs and they've got whatever, like they're in impossible situations in, in another way, but still like, I I don't know. It just, the, The word, the, the, like, the word that comes to mind is arrogance. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, there's no humility there. Mm-hmm. No empathy, no compassion. And their case files are case files. Yeah. And I don't think they start out wanting to treat people that way, but there's a kind of, there's a kind of systemic evil mm-hmm. that, that takes over the, you know, that's, that sucks the humanity mm-hmm. out of the interaction. Huh. Jump in here, Henry, where do we want to go from here? So, yeah, like... We have all these compounding things going on, this this dynamic of, you know, intergenerational trauma, you know, the trauma of losing your children, the trauma of, you know, having these these visits in in this place and not being able to build that connection and relationship to your children. You know, how does that tie into, like, you and your recovery? 
to an addiction? Everything that I've ever done was only for them. Mm. They're the only reason mm. that I'm that I'm in recovery at first. They were. I I couldn't do it for myself. I needed to make it about them until mm. I was to the point where I could make it about me too. Where it was because I loved me as well. Because mm. I really didn't for a really long time. And working with mm. the system only made that greater because you're already dealing mm. with the shame of your child not being with you. And then you have these people who are judging every single thing you do, every move you make, everything you say, and they will twist and turn these things mm. against you. And they will make the smallest thing that you do into this huge thing that could impact your child or yourself or your future and it's yeah. it's horrible and also like you know i i've i've you know i worked on the other side um, mm -hmm. being behind that mirror yeah i don't know if you if you knew but there was there was more likely one or two people in there taking notes and after a couple of times i just i couldn't do it it's, it's so, like, it just feels evil, you know, having to, mm -hmm. it almost felt like you're, you're sitting there judging that person, trying to build yeah. this, this connection and relationship to their child, knowing that, you, you know, they only have, you know, a few, few hours with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. And then for someone to come in there and question you, touching your, your son's face, you know, that's just, that's horrible. So mm -hmm. it's, it's very important that you're telling this story because it's very inspirational. You know, um, a lot of our people, um, when their children are apprehended and um, the children become permanent wards of CFS, a lot of people give up hope and then they go even further into their, their addictions or, you know, and, it's, it's nice to hear that there are people out there that were able to overturn status of permanent ward mm -hmm. and, and fight that system. And like Mike was saying, there's, they have all the power. Yeah, they do. They really do. And you do. have to jump through these hoops. And sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's, it's awful. The only thing that really kept me going was knowing that I'm the best person for my children. Mm -hmm. There were so many times that I doubted that, that I thought, oh my God, like I can't, I can't give them what their grandparents can give them. I can't give them that stability. I can't do this. I can't do that. And for a long time, I thought to myself, you know what? They're better off there mm -hmm. and they're better off away from me because mm. I do all of these things that are wrong. These people are telling me every day that everything that I do is wrong. So they, they're, they're better off if they stay there. That shame and that guilt can be very heavy. Yeah, it is. And that's the main thing that needs to be worked through. That was the main thing that kept me in that addiction for that year after my daughter was apprehended. Mm. That's the main the main thing that needs to be worked through and it's the ugliest feeling that there is as well. 
Yes. You know, I, I share teaching, um, you know, in Sweat Lodge about uh, the early years of our, of our being here in this physical state on, on Mother Earth and the, that connection between our mothers, you know, that unconditional love that the mother and child has. You know, and it, it's sad to think that our people are, are still losing that connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the safest place really for, for a baby is in their mother's arms. Mm-hmm. And that's that's being taken away to, to a lot of our children. I think it's, you know, um, getting up there, you know, about 10, 10 to 11,000 children in care and about 90% are Indigenous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, way overrepresented. Uh yeah, and it's probably I my sense is it's it's worse in Manitoba than just about anywhere in terms of the the disproportionate representation of indigenous kids mm-hmm. in care. So after, you know, sharing a little bit of that story and the process of um, overturning that our permanent ward status, um is there anything that you'd want to say to any moms or dads out there that who, who are in the process uh, of getting their kids back? Is there anything that you'd want to say to them? Um, not to give up hope, even if it's the smallest glimmer. You need to hold on to that and not let it go, no matter what. You need to build off of that one tiny glimmer. And no matter how much you think that your kids are better off, they're not. They need you. Mm. And they love you and they think about you every single day. Mm. And you are their person. And fight fight until you have nothing left and if they knock you down and you fall then crawl till you get there because those are your babies and they need you hmm. wow that's beautiful thanks I, I've been feeling the heaviness of this conversation um and and I think I'd expected a little bit like I've 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 gotten some some hints and pictures here and there along the way of like the amazing way in which like Deandra has turned things around in her life and for her kids and like the the happiness that she has with her kids you know the the goofy silly posts that I see on her Facebook post all the time of like you know just fun crazy stuff she's doing with her kids the the goofy little you know, games that, that her kids get into and, and just the delight of a mother with her children. And, and I think I was, I was looking forward to kind of basking in that a little bit and, and just realizing like you, you can't get to the happy ending of the story without going through the story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it is a celebration, but it's a celebration of like uh, coming through you know, something yeah. really hard. Yeah. Um, w- one of the things I noticed that you posted on, on Facebook uh, a while ago was um, 
about losing your cousin CJ, a local musician. Um, and and one of the things that really struck me was you you talked on on Facebook a little bit about how your experience of grief was different having your children with you than other experiences of grief uh, you've had when your your kids have not been there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just just talk about that and and about like how your how your children have been grounding for you and, and keep you healthy through the tough things that still, you know, come into your life. Um, so when my children were in care, I had lost my childhood best friend, James, and mm. uh, I was actually pregnant with my son during this time. And when I found out I completely blacked out and I, I lost a good couple hours and afterward it felt for an entire week, I just felt hazy and I stayed in bed and I didn't really do anything for myself. And, uh, I just kind of let that grief swallow me whole Mm. and it stayed that way for a really long time. And with my grandma as well, the same thing. When she passed, I just, I stayed with that, with that hurt. And I didn't talk about it. And I kept it to myself. And when I lost my cousin CJ, it was soul crushing because he was 20 years old. He, he had his, he had his struggles and he was really, really talented. Mm. And his, his music, you could, you can see through his music, the, the pain that he was feeling. He was a music producer and he created beats, but he would add lines from movies in there and you can really, it's like he was speaking, that was his way of speaking through his music. And it's really, it's, it's really beautiful. Um, One of the things that he wanted was for people to listen to his music and for people to hear him. And he spoke Mm. about that all the time. And he's on all streaming platforms as Who Killed CJ as one word. Um, if anyone wants to mm-hmm. listen, I know. Yeah. That, that was his, that was his rap mm-hmm. handle before he died yes. even. Yes. Who Killed CJ. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, but when, when I lost him, my daughter spent the weekend with her grandparents. My kids spent the weekend with their grandparents and then they came home that evening. So for a little bit, I was able to, to fall apart and I was able to do all of that. But once, once my kids got home, it was like, I had to, I had to take a breath and just do what they needed me to do. And Mm. 
So instead of spending all of my days in bed, I would wake up in the morning with Scarlett. I would get her her breakfast and I would eat with her. And we would play and she would make me laugh. And Mm. it's everything is so much anything I can go through anything Mm. now as Mm. long as they're with me and the resiliency that parenthood gives you is just it's it's incredible and they're they're literally my reason for everything good that I've ever done Mm. it's because of them and now that they are home and now that everything is where it needs to be I don't feel the need to self-medicate I don't feel the need to block everything out and forget everything and I'm able to sit with negative emotions and teach them how to sit with theirs because Yes, it's it's happy and it's good that my kids are home. But with my daughter, now we're working through her trauma together mm. from being from being apprehended. And some days are hard because mm. I have my therapist; she has her therapist, and but I'm still her main source of trauma therapy because I'm the yep. only person absolutely. That she yeah. Yep. So I'm I'm doing that and I really wanted to take a year off from everything because I knew that it would it would be it would be hard and she she is getting better mm. and she is able to talk about things easier and she she's more open with me now and she knows that if she's sad or if she's angry that she can come to me and that'll help her and that feelings are normal and they're not something that you should be ashamed of or something that you need to hide from or run away from and it's Mm. it's scary right now because I need to talk to her about what this sickness is because when she asks I tell her mom was sick Mm. I was sick that's why you weren't home Mm. and in the beginning it worked for her but she's getting older now Mm. and she's asking more questions and she doesn't she'll say like oh well grandma gets sick and we don't have to go we don't have to leave when she gets sick. So I've told her it's a different kind of sickness. She's asked me if she will get sick. And I've told mm. her that it's possible because I was sick and because her dad was sick. But I tell her that me and dad didn't have anybody. We didn't have anybody to talk to. We didn't have anybody to tell us these things. And we were alone. Mm. but you're not Mm. and you will never be alone and you have me and I will help you. 
That's a I'm really not. powerful thing to say. Like, like that's, it's really honest. Like you're not, mm-hmm. you're not, you're not saying nothing bad is ever going to happen to you, yeah. but you're also, you're the, the comfort you're offering her is very real mm-hmm. because it's, it's absolutely true that she's not alone mm-hmm. in the, in the same way that you were alone. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge gift that you've given your, your, your daughter. Hmm. You're an amazing mom, Deandra. I just, I just want to say that Thank on you. the record. <laughs> I've said it before, but I'm saying it on the record. You're an amazing mom. Thank you. And uh, it's, it's been a real honor to, you know, just share a slice of your journey. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels like, like there's a part of me that feels really weird as a white guy uh, <laughs> to have been the person that said to you, like, we're going to go pick some sage, yeah. put down some tobacco. And you came to me and asked me about prayer. But um, and, and of course, there were I mean, there were other knowledge keepers that were, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely in leadership positions. Um and and who who gave you know the real teachings, but um, it does it does give me some like like the Sandy Soto Spiritual Center. It's a place of living out the apology of the United Church of Canada mm-hmm. for uh, for dismissing, disrespecting Indigenous spiritual ways. And you know, Murray Sinclair talks about like reconciliation. Like if you've taken something away you have to give it back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I feel deeply humbled and grateful that there was like some small way in which I carrying the legacy of my people could be part of giving something back, you know, mm-hmm. some, some opening of a door that, you know, that some of my ancestors tried to slam shut yeah. as, as hard as they could. Um, so I'm, I'm just really, I'm really grateful, uh, for the way you've shared with us today. Um, I think your, your story is going to be really powerful and really inspiring to, to a lot of our, our listeners. Um, um, I think Henry, Henry wanted to ask one more thing. Yeah. So you're a poet. Um, just wanted to see if you'd be able to share um, what are you writing about these days and, if there's anything that you'd want to share with us and, and the people that will be listening to this, uh, this podcast. Um, I'm actually working on a two series book. Um, the first one will be a look into my mom's childhood, her family, their upbringing and about how they overcame it. And the second one will be about how it all affected me and being the child of a Dena village survivor and um so there's that um I have kind of like a pre-poem here I don't really want to share the actual poem but um okay this was written on the anniversary of the day that my son was apprehended Mm. um that day is always really hard for me but this is this is what I wrote just to kind of get myself through it. Um, my heart is beating so hard I can see it through my chest. My breathing has slowed. My eyes well up with tears every few minutes. I'm beginning to feel foggy. I don't want to feel this anymore. 
yes, I do. I want to feel this. Mm. Even if it doesn't currently feel as though I'll ever feel cheerful again, I know that I will. My subconscious believes I'm still in the hospital waiting for my son to be ripped from my arms only hours after birthing him. It's been three years and my body still believes it's there. I'm not, though. Not anymore. I am home, in my bed. My son is with his grandparents just because he wants to be. He can come home tomorrow if he wanted. I don't have social workers anymore. Both of my children are in my custody. I did it. They're home. You did it, Deandra. They're both home now. They're safe. I don't really know how to get myself through this, so I'm just going to keep writing until I feel better. If that doesn't happen, I'll just keep writing until I'm too tired to write anymore. Inhale misery. Exhale poetry. Exhale poetry. Okay. I actually have that tattooed on my wrists. Inhale misery. Exhale poetry. Mm. Oh. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So, Deandra, um, I just want to really thank you, you know, for telling a bit of your story and and just the, the raw emotions coming from you, you know. Um, even through the computer, you know, we can, can feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for taking the time to, to be here with us today. Um, I really hope that, uh, you know, your story can be a spark, you know, for someone, mm-hmm. for, for a mother or, or a father that's, that's struggling to, you know, get their children back from that, mm-hmm. that colonial system. Mm-hmm. you have anything you wanted to add, Marcus? I just, I, I want our, I want our list, like, this is, I, I was talking about this before already, but I, you know, I want our listeners to know, like, even, like, even in this, even in this conversation, like, when, when your daughter opened the door, <laughs> you know, like, 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 I think what impresses me so much about you, Deandra, is, like, you carry the full weight, you know, the, with full consciousness of, of this misery, you know, that, that's gone, mm-hmm. that's shot through your life, through your, your family's lives. Um, and, and you, you can cry, but you can also laugh. And, and I, I, um, you're just an, I want people to know like how fun of a person you are. Uh, and that, and, and, it's, you know, you're so fun with your kids mm-hmm. and it's, it, it just, it does my heart good to, to see uh, like you're that that's another therapy you're doing with your kids. Like yeah. you're talking about, you're working with them how to carry heavy things, but you're also like, I just see the delight and the joy and the fun and the silliness uh, that you share. And, and it, it just makes me happy every time I get a, a glimpse of that. And, and uh, I'm so happy that Sandy Soto could be a small part of, know your your journey to to taking back what's yours you know in in that relationship as a mother with her children and and thank you very very much for the the sacred gift of sharing your story with us today you're welcome uh thank you both for for having me and for giving me a platform to share my story and to talk about my people and 
my kids and my journey with bringing them home. Okay, miigwech. Miigwech. How do you say it in Dene? Masi. Masi. Yes. Okay, take care. Thanks, you too. Bye.